Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we travel to Charleston, West Virginia, to learn about the importance of funeral singers to black communities. For me, being a singer, it is important to exemplify healing. You have a responsibility to heal and to comfort. We'll also hear about a new tool whose maker believes he can help save thousands of lives from fatal opioid overdoses. Just having a box in a place that says naloxone that doesn't look like a first aid kit is step one. And we talk with author Barbara Kingsolver about the influence of Appalachia in her books. They say that every writer is really writing the same story over and over again. And if that's true, my story is about community. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. For many black communities throughout the country, music is an essential component of end-of-life rituals. When a loved one dies, families often call upon a skilled singer to perform at a funeral as a way to offer comfort and healing. And I take some time just to think things over. In Charleston, West Virginia, 41-year-old Michelle Dias is one of the go-to singers that people request when it's time to plan a funeral. It's just like macaroni and cheese. You cannot have macaroni without cheese. You cannot have a successful black funeral without singing. Michelle says that when planning a funeral, booking the singer is often top priority. I've gotten phone calls when somebody has died, the morgue has not come and gotten the body yet. Before they've made a funeral arrangement, before they know where it's going to be, what day, what time, they want to know if you can come sing. Our Folkways fellow, Leisha Lee, is cousins with Michelle. Leisha recently sat down with Michelle to talk about singing at funerals and has this report. Michelle has probably sang at every single funeral that I've attended that has been someone related to us. And we have a large, large family. And Michelle is just our go-to singer. But in the Charleston community, when someone passes away, it's pretty common to see Michelle going up to the pulpit to sing. Singing at a funeral makes it all come together. Even though you are grieving, you're also able to rejoice and celebrate that person. I'm no longer bound. No more chains holding me. My soul is resting. Michelle says that the history in funeral singing is tied to the slave era. It's in our roots, in our blood. It became a way to express how they really felt about their loved ones and basically how it should have been in their life, understanding that there's a greater glory because now they were ascending to heaven, which was something far greater than what they experienced here on earth. So it became a ritual for us to hold on to, and it still is like it today. The way Michelle got started singing at funerals is somebody heard her singing at church. Singing at church was when I had first, I don't know if you were calling an engagement for a funeral, but it's when I was first asked, you know, could you sing at so-and-so's funeral? Michelle's voice is, and she does not give herself enough credit, her voice is simply angelic. So much pain. And it is powerful and it is strong, but at the same time it is very peaceful and relaxing. And the things that she can do with her voice is, I mean, it's definitely a gift. And that gift she uses, you know, as a power to promote healing for families. For me, being a singer, it is important to exemplify healing. You have a responsibility to heal and to comfort. 
to give hope and to give joy. And I think that makes a great funeral that makes you leave with a sense of hope, a sense of dignity, a sense of peace and love, and and just to be able to carry on after you've experienced something such as traumatic as death sometimes. She doesn't just like sing a song. She actually ministers to the family. When she's singing, she'll sometimes change the lyrics to the name of the person that passed away, or she'll change them to the name of the family or speak to a specific situation that the person who's deceased may have went through. But I'll say thank you Not only does she engage the audience, she uses the song to let them know that brighter days are ahead. Some people are so effective in your life when they go. It's like, how am I supposed to pick up the pieces to move forward? And songs and music is so powerful that it can actually pick you up and put you where you need to be. And that's what people want. And in black funerals, it's important for us to feel that because of all the infirmities and all of the weight that we've carried all these long years. It's important for us to understand that it won't always be like this, that somehow, in some way, better days are coming. Michelle's daughters, they all can sing, but her youngest daughter is Kayla, and she's 14. And Michelle said that because she has the gift and the passion for people, that she takes her with her, and she's going to allow her to start ministering through song as well. I've taken my kids a few times with me to minister. Kayla is one of my kids who's getting more interested in singing and doing other things, so I'm about to be passing it on to her and let them call her so she can go out and do it. I think the thing that makes Michelle absolutely amazing at this is that she genuinely does it out the kindness of her heart. She does not charge. She does it because she feels that that is her gift and that is her way to help the family move on in their time of grief. She believes that that's her gift and that's what she's supposed to do. His face. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Leisha Lee in Charleston, West Virginia. Fall colors are really beginning to pop where I live, along the Blue Ridge Parkway. For a lot of people, this is peak season to get outside. But while the end of summer comes with a drop in biting flies and mosquitoes, we're not out of the woods yet. Folks venturing out into the forest are still at risk for tick bites and Lyme disease. And y'all, here in central and northern Appalachia, we're in prime Lyme disease country. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Chris Schultz sat down with former West Virginia State Health Officer Dr. Ayn Amjad to discuss safety and prevention. Dr. Amjad, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I want to start off by just asking you, when we talk about tick-borne illnesses, what exactly is it that we're referring to? There's a long period when we're susceptible to ticks, anywhere from March to December, which is pretty much the whole year. But I think on top of that, you know, it's when patients present with symptoms, which can be 30 days to a couple of months afterwards, which might be why we kind of see this pattern. Is it worse during the spring or the summer? But I think that's part of it. Um, Lyme disease is more common in our eastern panhandle, close to Maryland. Um, Maryland is also one of the hotspot states that have um, tick-borne illnesses. But if we see anything um, common, it would probably be um, Lyme disease as far as tick-borne illnesses go. Why is Lyme disease a particular concern? It's the long-term effects of Lyme disease. So if you get bitten by a tick and you and it's attached for a long period of time and not treated with antibiotics appropriately right away, several months, anywhere from one month to three months to six months, a person can have long-term effects or Lyme disease. So it can cause a sequence of reactions that um, can affect your health and, you know, joint pain. Some people have cardiac problems, um, chronic fatigue. So there are just things like that, that it can have long-lasting effects on someone. Governor Justice had a Lyme disease scare over the summer. Um, Can you tell us how he's doing now? He's doing well. I mean, and I think he was treated appropriately right away with antibiotics, so that helps. And so I think anytime you suspect Lyme disease or or see a tick and you remove it and it was attached longer than 24 hours, it's to 
get treated right away so that you don't have those side effects later, a couple of weeks or months later. So what preventions can people take against ticks? You need to put on bug spray when you go outside. Um, you know, it can be, and a lot of people don't like the old ones, you know, it has DEET in it or permethrin, but you can get natural ones as well. Definitely stay on trails, try not to go in the shrubs too much. But if you do, I always wear a hat because, you know, it can get into your hair easily. Um, also gets on pets as well. So definitely check your pets when they get back in. But definitely wearing um, bug screen, um, wearing light, light colored clothing helps a little bit better because then you can see if there's something sticking on you. After you've gone out, let's say for a hike or somewhere where it's possible that there are ticks and even deer, you know, if you see deer a lot, I would assume there could be ticks around as well. Definitely when you come back in, check your hair, um, check any um, areas that the ticks could have been sometimes behind the the knees, the armpits, you know, they tend to go in little crevices and hide um, and take a shower right away. Um, and yeah, definitely check your pets. I mean, my pet, my dog has had little ticks on it just by going in a, a yard that's not even that brushy. So, What if the preventions fail? What then? If someone has a tick bite or, or finds a tick on them? I would say if you find a tick on you and you remove it, to let your physician know, because your symptoms might show up till three days, seven days, one month later. And by then you've kind of missed that window for treatment. So most physicians or healthcare providers will say, if you were, if you saw it and removed it right away and it did bite you, you don't need treatment. Watch for symptoms such as fever, rash, fatigue, almost like flu-like symptoms, but there's a window of opportunity for treatment. So I would recommend any patient who finds a tick on them just to go ahead and let their healthcare provider know. So that say you call back in a few days, or maybe they do want to pre-treat you, you know, or do some blood tests on you. It's better to know ahead of time than three, five days later. CDC data shows us that visits to emergency departments for tick bites tend to spike at the end of spring, early summer, and then again, right around now at the start of fall. Do you have any idea why that might be? I have not seen that chart that you're talking about, but if the peaks are towards, you said the end of summer and then beginning of fall, I would think that it's because summer starts, more people are going outside. Keep in mind, you know, that time March to December of tick season is it's really, like I said, it's this whole year, so it doesn't make any sense. But I would think that's why you were seeing those um, spikes, that you, as you mentioned, because summertime, everyone's rushing out, going out. Maybe it's not too hot yet, or maybe they don't see bugs, so they're not spraying themselves. Same thing in the fall. We tend to think it's a little cooler outside. Today it's cool. Maybe I don't need bug spray. I don't see bugs, you know, flying on me like I would normally, so they probably don't do it. So I would think that's why we're seeing these spikes. Dr. Amjad, is there anything else you think the public should know about ticks and tick-borne illnesses? No, I just want to remind people to check their pets, and I'll say dogs because I have dogs. Um, because, you know, we don't, we live in a populated area, but we still see deer a lot. And, you know, the, the, the grass is not high, but the dog somehow still gets ticks on it in their ears or behind and stuff. So I would just remind people to check their pets, too, because pets can get sick from it the same way, you know, have joint pains and just problems later. And then but I would just remind people to check their fur babies. That was former West Virginia State Health Officer Dr. Ayan Amjad speaking with reporter Chris Schultz about the risk of tick-borne illnesses in West Virginia. So, what's your favorite tree? Does he change colors in the fall? A lot of folks like maples or hickory. But I know some people adore oak trees. So for you oak lovers, we bring a story from the Allegheny Front about the connection between fungal networks and white oak trees. White oaks are important for making things like bourbon barrels and for forest ecology. And the Allegheny Front's Julie Grant spoke with a researcher who says we should look down to understand the future of these forest giants. When you walk across the ground, you don't realize how much diversity is below ground. Hi, Kara. Yeah, Jared DeForest is a professor of ecosystem ecology at Ohio University, and he studies the forest floor, the soils, and the mycorrhizal networks underneath. What are those? Well, some mushrooms, or fungi, decompose litter like fallen leaves and logs in the forest. Others have beneficial symbiotic relationships with certain trees. Pretty much 90% of all land plants are associated with some type of mycorrhizal species. Wow. And what does that mean for forests? 
Well, DeFora says they don't really know a lot about it yet. There are questions like, are the trees helping each other, communicating about things like disease? What they do know is that these networks are all around us. Actually, one of the common uh, in this area is our rusulas. They're red caps. You'll see them. Those are mycorrhizal. And now researchers think they understand that different trees are connected with two different types of mycorrhizal networks, the ectomycorrhizal and the arbuscular mycorrhizal. What's the difference, Julie? Well, the forest explains that the arbuscular mycorrhizal, which are connected with maples, tulip poplars, and black gum trees, are considered scavengers. Arbuscular mycorrhizal species, those leaves decompose fast. And so what they're all about is scavenging that stuff up, making things more nutrient-rich, speeding up the cycling of nutrients, and then they can grow bigger and faster. While the other type, the ectomycorrhizal, is associated with oaks and hickories, which are considered miners. Those are the ones that actually slow down decomposition. So they mine out the, the nutrients and they suck it up. So these, these systems are actually nutrient poor, but it's good for the ectomycorrhizal. They want to keep it nutrient poor because that's what they do best. So if a forest is clear-cut for lumber or to manage trees, what grows back depends partly on the soil. In poor soil, you're more likely to get oaks. In the more nutrient-rich soil, he says the little seedlings of arbuscular mycorrhizal species would be more likely to do better. So what kind of research is DeForest himself doing in our region? Well, in his own research, DeForest has looked at how power production impacts forests. Pollution and climate change are factors. Coal produces a lot of uh, nitrogen and nutrients actually fall from the sky. That it's altered the soil condition to make it more nutrient-rich. And the more nutrient-rich soils are, it favors those scavenger, um, abuscular mycorrhizal species like maple. Also in this area, due to climate change, it's getting wetter. And that's also one of these contributing causes because oaks, beech, pines, they do really good on dry sites. Um, but now things are getting wetter and maples, tulip poplar, abuscular mycorrhizal do a little bit better on wetter sites. So what does this all mean for the future of oaks in forests? Well, the forest and others are predicting that we'll see more maples in the forests and declining numbers of oaks. We'll still have oaks, but it's not going to be as dominant as what it was 100 years ago. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Kara. The Allegheny Friends' Julie Grant has more on how advocates, foresters, and the government are working on white oak regeneration in forests. That's at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Kara Holsapel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Coming up, we take a spin around the track at the Ona Speedway. The little guy wants to race just like the big guy. And if you got a big guy that's got a million dollars a year to bank the race with versus a guy that races out of his pocket from week to week, there's a big difference there. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In the early 1960s, short track racing put Ono, West Virginia on the map. As West Virginia's first and only oval asphalt racetrack, the Ono Speedway has been at the epicenter of regional racing culture. Year after year, a lot of the same families return to race, watch, and impart hard-earned wisdom to new generations of drivers. In 2020, Lexi Browning spent some time with one of these families, the Siglers. Ono, West Virginia is a town with two stoplights, but it's also a place where legends are made. Go, 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 not yet. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, go, now. Okay, that's better. 
That's Greg Sigler. He's been racing at Ona Speedway for nearly two decades. But today, he's coaching his 15-year-old son, Cole, from the sidelines, using a headset that lets them talk back and forth. Keep, keep, the, keep the momentum. Keep coming. You're doing fine. Cole, who drives a white 2006 Cobalt sporting the number 99, has just embarked on his own racing career. It's his first time behind the wheel of a car. You're doing good. For the Sicklers, days at the Ona Speedway are a family affair. Cole's mother, Michael Ann, is there too. She says racing has brought the father and son closer together. They didn't really have a whole lot in common. And now that they're racing, they talk a lot. They stay gone late at night working on cars. It's really made his dad proud of him. Between practice sessions and races, Greg, Cole, and Michael Ann often spend long days together at the Speedway, but she doesn't mind. It's just real family-oriented, and I like that about it. Out on the track, Cole's cautious, but he's gaining confidence. He's easing into turns and leaning harder into the accelerator. After a few more laps, he pulls over for a tune-up, and his crew guides him to a trailer, which serves as their makeshift pit. Hey, shut it off for a second. It's a routine check for safety. The guys check the tires, add air, and tighten a few bolts. Greg gives the green light, and with that, the Cobalt and Cole are ready to return to the track. Fired up. Man, that's a nice car, isn't it? Yep. It's not just blood relations who come together here. The track is the center of the racing community that Michael Land describes as, quote, one big family. Marshall Herring agrees. He's been coming here since the track opened, first as a spectator, then as a driver, promoter, and flagger. Now, at 71, he's seen his fair share of tracks. I raced at Ona back in the 60s, and then I moved to Florida. I raced at Palm Beach Fairgrounds Speedway, Hylia Speedway, Hollywood Speedway. But the Ona Speedway, Speedway is home, and there's no place he'd rather be. When it opened in August 1963, it could seat 16,000 spectators, and it was slated to become a NASCAR track. The Speedway hosted four NASCAR races, bringing in big names like Richard Petty and Bobby Allison to the tiny town. People actually bought stocks in Ona Speedway uh, back then. It was a, they were going to build this track and make it a big thing. There was The track that's there now was the original track that they built, but it was laid out for an even bigger track around the outside of it to run the NASCAR cars on. NASCAR racing traces its roots to the Prohibition era, when quick getaways were a necessity for moonshiners in the hills of Appalachia. Souped-up engines became a way for moonshiners to deliver their products and outrun any lawmen they encountered. By the 50s, the sport was gaining traction in fans across the United States, and Ono was right there at the center of it. It was unbelievable. I mean, I remember going there when I was young as a kid when they ran the NASCAR track, where the airport is now and all that whole bottomland was nothing but cars. There was people up in the trees on the hillside. It was unbelievable, the people that came to watch the NASCAR races at that track. The rural roads made it difficult for NASCAR's massive car hauling trailers to access the track. The speedway was only a half mile from the nearest stretch of interstate, but without any off-ramps to accommodate the trailers, the NASCAR races eventually stopped. After a 22-year hiatus, a local family reopened the freshly paved track in 1995. By then, its seating capacity had shrunk from 16,000 to 5,000, reflecting racing's new realities. People kind of died off from it, and the track doesn't bring the crowds in like they used to. None of them do. It's hard to bring a crowd into a racetrack and charge somebody to come and watch a race, even though they might want to watch it, and it's a show that they're getting, and it's well worth the money. But it's hard to get people to do that because of television. That's been a big factor in the short track racing. Over the last few years, though, Marshall said things have started looking up thanks to new owners. Both attendance and car counts are up. He says it reminds him of the old days. They're running things pretty much the way it should be, and I see the track coming back a little bit, and I hope it continues to. I would love to see that place packed full of people the way it used to be, the way all the tracks used to be. Marshall says the key is leveling the playing field to make the sport more accessible to younger folks and those with lower incomes. The little guy wants to race just like the big guy. And if you got a big guy that's got a million dollars a year to bank to race with versus a guy that races out of his pocket from week to week and has to do without a loaf of bread maybe to get a bolt or a tire or something for his car so he can race, there's a big difference there. 
Scouring junkyards for used parts or bartering with other drivers can help lower costs of restoring and maintaining the modified stock cars, which can be classified as late models, hobby stocks, and classics. So can swapping out metal bumpers with cheaper plastics. But the best way to get involved, says Marshall, is to simply start by showing up and helping out at the track and in the garage, like Cole did. He started coming up here to the shop with his dad some, and I would tease him and say, we're going to put you in one of these cars next year. And he got to where he was working on the cars a little bit and helping us. And I think it's great. And I think we need more kids doing stuff like that. All right, this lap right here, listen to me. It's been a few hours, and Cole's finishing out his final set of laps. The setting sun marks the end of practice, so he pulls off the track, parks, and gets out. Driving, he found out today, isn't as hard as it seems. Honestly, it feels like you're being pushed, feels like everything's getting pushed to one side, but you know, I couldn't ask for anything better. This is probably the best track for starting off. Greg walks over to congratulate his son on a job well done. You did it! Mm -hmm. Look at you, you're like a professional racer. The race cars are loaded and the trailer doors are closed. With that, the Sicklers head home, eager to cross the next finish line. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lexi Browning in Ona, West Virginia. The Ona Speedway closed down in spring 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic, but it reopened in May, only about 10 weeks after the beginning of the lockdown. It's closing out its 2022 season in October. The pandemic sent more people outside, and many of them are discovering West Virginia. Tourism's up bringing new revenue to communities that have been through some hard times recently. But can tourism jobs fill the gap left by the decline in other industries? West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas reports on the future of tourism jobs in the Mountain State. For some, West Virginia has long been a destination for outdoor activities. While the pandemic shook up most of the world's economies, including tourism, it actually gave things here a boost. According to a press release from Governor Jim Justice's office, West Virginia's tourism industry is up nearly 4% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Nationally, tourism is still down 27% compared to 2019. Even with those increases, employment in the tourism industry has not kept up. According to Chelsea Ruby, the state's Secretary of Tourism, employment often lags a couple years behind visitor spending. Where what we saw was this traveler spending was growing really fast. We were outpacing the national rate of growth by about 58%. So then you get to 2019 and you see this, this huge increase um, where employment was actually the highest it had been um, in, the, in the previous decade because it was starting to catch up with that spending growth. Ruby explained that workforce projections show that the hospitality and travel industry will need a lot more new employees in West Virginia in the coming years. According to data from Workforce West Virginia, the leisure and hospitality sector employs almost 69,000 people. But that's actually 4,000 fewer than in 2011, and only about 5,000 more than 2001. That right before the pandemic, we were at the height of where we'd been as far as directly employed tourism employees. And the second thing you'll see is a gradual increase in earnings that we've seen as far as the ratio between earnings and in jobs. We're starting to pay more in these positions, which I think is important to long-term growth in the industry. Richie Heath is the executive director of the West Virginia Hospitality and Travel Association. The spending trends are, are, are back and better than ever. You're seeing that, that overall tourism spending is up over where it was in the pandemic. The governor's report indicates traveler spending in West Virginia exceeded $4.9 billion in 2021. Spending for lodging alone was up more than 44%. But Heath agreed that employment is still lagging. You, you've got a lot of tourism activity going on in southern West Virginia now, which, which obviously uh, ha, has needed some of that development. And we're seeing local businesses down there. They're now expanding. They, they, they're doing cabins and, and lodging and, and things like that geared towards all the traffic. The Hatfields and McCoys Trail is a southern West Virginia success story on one level. It is bringing money and visitors into a region of our state that has struggled in recent years. It opened in 2000 and has grown every year since. This year, they sold 95,000 permits to ride the trails from March to November. 80% of those visitors are from out of state. For Jeffrey Lusk, the executive director of the trail system, it's about the businesses created by West Virginians. It's been pretty successful. We're kind of an engine of entrepreneurship. Um, we've had a lot of businesses. Uh, these businesses primarily are lodging. Uh, there has been some food service and stuff like that. We're still 
I would call us, you know, if I had to frame us, we are a small regional tourist destination. Lusk explained that impact studies show the trail system brings in about $68 million in revenue, but it supports fewer than 700 direct jobs. Most of the cabins and other lodging places only have one or two full-time employees and a few part-time cleaning people. So you see that it's not an engine for jobs. It's definitely an engine for entrepreneurship. The pandemic was actually a bonus for the trails. When we were coming into the pandemic, we were at 55,000 riders. We came out of that at 95,000. One of the big questions when it comes to tourism is do tourism jobs replace the manufacturing or mining jobs the state has lost over the years? Jordan Newsom is the communications director for the Hospitality Association. He noted that the coming jobs in the tourism industry aren't all entry-level, minimum-wage type positions. Between now and 2025, I think they said that they're expecting about 24,000 job openings in hospitality and tourism, and 13,000 of those, so over half, would be a management-style job. The state recently received a $5 million grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration. Rather than investing that money into advertising or infrastructure, Tourism Secretary Ruby said they chose to use the grant for education. So we'll start with middle school curriculum development. We'll be creating pathways in high school so kids can start earning college credits while they're in high school towards hospitality degrees. We'll be looking at creating new training programs for all the hospitality workers um, out. So everybody from the gas station workers to hotel clerks, restaurant um, waiters, et cetera. And then we're also going to be looking at training. How can we upskill some of our existing workforce so that they can enter the industry or move up in the industry? For Ruby, this is a career field more West Virginians should be looking at. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. In 1948, a hiker named Earl Schaefer came up with the idea of an alternative to the Appalachian Trail, the hiking-only trail that travels through 14 states and spans nearly 2,200 miles. Named the Great Eastern Trail, this other route stretches from the Deep South to New England, just west of the Appalachian Trail. But it wasn't until 2007 that the Great Eastern Trail Association was created, and parts of the trail began to open up to hikers. But as Jessica Lilly reports, when hikers get to southern West Virginia, they find a trail that's incomplete. This is uh, something that I wrote to inspire me to get down the trail. Hillbilly Bart Houck was one of two to complete the first through hike of the Great Eastern Trail. I spoke with him back in 2013. New trail system like this just doesn't pop up every year and to actually try to be one of the first to hike this trail and to showcase it and to bring it into light is actually a very humbling experience. The hope for this trail was that it would relieve some of the foot traffic on the iconic Appalachian Trail, which hosts about three million hikers each year. It, it also is going to be an economic boost for this area that needs a a boost other than coal. I'm not against coal. Actually, I have a lot of friends that are in the coal industry, but this is a, uh, a way for to showcase Southern West Virginia in a, uh, in a different light. Nearly a decade later, I wanted to find out if the Great Eastern Trail did give Southern West Virginia an economic boost. So I went back on the trail to find out. Trailblazes are, uh, there's a code uh, to uh, know whether to turn right or left. Uh. This is Tim McGraw, president of the Chuganoo Hiking Club, which maintains and promotes the Great Eastern Trail in southern West Virginia. And it's still here. How long would you say that's been there? About 10 years. We're checking yeah. blazes, or markings, to follow the trail, along a drivable portion of the trail in Mercer County. The trail and the access it gives him to nature are special. I like to be out in nature. I particularly like to be up on the ridges in southern West Virginia. It is, uh, for me, it's a, a kind of a spiritual uh, experience. I just wanted to share what I feel when I'm in nature. I want to share that with other people. You can take it or you can leave it. <laughs> The trail runs from Alabama to New York, west of the Appalachian Trail, but portions of it are incomplete, especially in southern West Virginia. 
McGraw says the biggest challenge to completing the trail here is private land ownership. Trailblazers tried to keep the trail on accessible land by mapping it to connect public lands. Those lands include R.D. Bailey Lake Wildlife Management Area, Bluestone State Park, and Twin Falls Resort State Park. Scott Durham worked as superintendent of Twin Falls in Wyoming County for 42 years. We let them co-designate some of our existing trails at Twin Falls as pieces of the Great Eastern Trail. That designation has gone away, not because they're not welcome, but because they've just been inactive. The proposed route for the Great Eastern Trail inevitably crosses private property to reach public lands like Twin Falls. Wyoming County has the highest concentration of outside land ownership of any county in the state, according to a study from 2013. In fact, Twin Falls was donated to the state by a private company. All the land around three-quarters of the boundary of Twin Falls is corporate land. And corporate landowners have a reason for not granting access to hikers, liability. For Durham and many residents in southern West Virginia, it's a familiar story. I've been involved in any number of economic development efforts. The, the real hard part of trying to, to create economic development in southern West Virginia always comes back to uh, having access to buy land and own land. But Durham says the Great Eastern Trail would mean more than economic development to the region. It brings a stamp of approval to, if you go to some place in Virginia or North Carolina, and they say, well, the Appalachian Trail runs right through here. That gives you a image of what that place is and, and the quality of the outdoor experience at that place. What could a completed trail do for the economy in southern West Virginia? Well, there's a hint at what's possible further down the trail in Narrows, Virginia. Welcome to the General Douglas MacArthur Hotel. That's Alan Neely. He has an award-winning mustache and a passion for his hometown. Narrows, Virginia is a national trail town because it's the only town in the United States where two major hiking trails intersect, the Great Eastern Trail and the Appalachian Trail. After working as the lead construction contractor at Virginia Tech, he retired and rescued this historic hotel from demolition. Now about a quarter of his business is hikers. I mean, we had people from Brazil and Britain and Spain and, you know, come through and they go back to their hometowns wherever it might be and tell of the little town that they love. You know, we've even had some people to hike through here and they'll come back and buy houses and move here. The vision for many coal and railroad towns in southern West Virginia also includes restoring a historic hotel and growing a tourism industry. So what will it take to get the Great Eastern Trail completed in West Virginia? Scott Durham says to start, it'll take initiative. There needs to be people who step up, but there are serious hikers here. It may just take that one person who cares. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jessica Lilly. A controversial curriculum has taken root in Ohio's charter school system. Some historians have criticized the program for revising American history and minimizing the racial struggles of the country. Caitlin Thorne with the Ohio Valley Resource says the program raises questions as neighboring states like Kentucky and West Virginia begin to authorize their own charter schools. Cincinnati Classical Academy is a charter school that just opened in August. It uses something called the 1776 Curriculum, a conservative educational model. Proponents say it leads students towards moral and intellectual virtue through a classic liberal arts education. This is part of what drew Jatel Michelin and her husband Jamil to enroll their daughter in the school. Here's Jatel. It builds a person. It's not only about academics. I mean, you want um, kids that eventually become adults that are efficient in society and that work well with others and that respect others. The 1776 curriculum was created by Hillsdale College, a private conservative institution in Michigan. The model is an offshoot of the 1776 Commission, an initiative ordered by former President Donald Trump in response to so-called critical race theory. The curriculum downplays the enslavement of black people in the United States 
and suggests that systemic racism was essentially ended by the civil rights movement in the 1960s. While critics are concerned about historical inaccuracy, Jamil Michelin says he likes the focus on morality. What really attracted me was the fact of the classical education, the, uh, focusing on virtues, focusing on the, on the classics as well. Charter schools are independently managed but publicly funded schools. They are not subject to certain state or local rules, giving them more flexibility in what is taught. And that's led to a rapid growth of charters across the country in recent years. Though Ohio first authorized charter schools in the late 90s, West Virginia's first charter schools opened up last month. Kentucky is slated to get its first charter schools next year. During the ribbon-cutting for Cincinnati Classical, Ohio Board of Education President Charlotte McGuire said charter schools are trailblazers in the public school system. You're here because you value your children. You're here because you want an option for every unique child. A new charter school is slated to open in Athens, Ohio in 2024. It plans to use the 1776 curriculum. It's drawn criticism from the community because multiple Academy Board members attend the same local church. But the Academy states on its website that it does not have any religious affiliation. Jennifer Shore is the president of the Ohio Charter School Authorizers. She says the school can't be religious because it receives public funding. They can't have anything that isn't you know, what a public school would have. So um, there's very much a separation of, of that kind of thing. William Phyllis is the founder of the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Adequacy of School Funding. He worries that the 1776 curriculum would create further political division. Our system should lead to the common good, you know, what's good for everybody. These kinds of arrangements lead to tribalism. Critics also worry that charters sap funding from traditional public schools. But school choice advocates argue that funding should follow kids to wherever they get an education. So far, over 50 schools across the country use the 1776 curriculum. At least seven have been approved in Ohio. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Caitlin Thorne. Opioid addiction costs thousands of lives each year. Health officials and advocates are thinking creatively to find ways to stem the loss. But not everyone's thinking outside the box to find solutions. Some people are thinking very much inside the box. Producer Bill Lynch has this story. September 23rd, thousands came to southern West Virginia for the Healing Appalachia Music Festival featuring Tyler Childers, country singer Margot Price, and the jam band Galactic. The festival is for the nonprofit Hope in the Hills, which raises funds and awareness for opioid recovery in Appalachia. Along with picking up a t-shirt or a sticker from their favorite band, attendees could connect with addiction recovery organizations from three states, among them the West Virginia Drug Intervention Institute in Charleston. A few days before the festival, Institute President Dr. Susan Bissett and inventor Joe Murphy were preparing for the festival where they hoped to help train 1,201 people on how to administer naloxone. 1,201 is the number of people from West Virginia who died last year from opioid overdoses. Everyone the Institute trained at the festival, including performing artists, was to receive a kit, a one-box, a standalone overdose reversal kit created by Murphy. Just having a box in a place that says naloxone that doesn't look like a first aid kit is step one. When you are on a campus, when you're in a bar, when you're at Applebee's in the bathroom, like if you see naloxone emergency kit, you know this may or may not have naloxone. What do I need to do next? Step one is to just open the box, which starts a video with former Huntington Fire Chief Jan Rader, a recovery advocate and one of the women featured in the Oscar-nominated documentary, Heroin. Once you open the box, an emergency version First pops off, up. Let's take a deep breath. And, and Jan will tell you, and in both English and Spanish. How to overcome an using this kit, how to overcome and reverse an overdose immediately. So the emergency function is fantastic when you need it, but we believe that if you use the training function far in advance, for example, you begin to work at a service-based industry, any industry, you fill out your W-2 and when you're done with your W-2, you hit training mode. The first thing that you want to do if you come across someone you think has overdosed from an overdose. Training mode is a long form version 
that takes six to ten minutes with the computer component, which was created by the West Virginia Drug Intervention Institute, that will legitimately train every person following all, in this case, West Virginia state standards. Murphy went through several different models of one box before getting to the current version. Demand for it was almost instant. We built the box. We immediately had a great deal of interest. We started getting calls from throughout Appalachia. We've now had orders from around 22 states. And for us, it's not only a way to cure this problem because when you break it down, 1,201 overdoses is something we can legitimately make an impact on and can stop. But one of the components that we've brought in and Susan and the WVDI have helped me with uh, is we've built uh, and have begun building staff of folks in recovery who are building all these boxes. So now they have meaningful jobs and meaningful positions. And many of these folks have been resuscitated by naloxone themselves. So these boxes are made in West Virginia by those in recovery and they are now in service, which is a big part of the recovery loop, right? To always be in service to the next guy. So the likelihood these boxes will save lives, that one of the ones that pass through their hands will save lives is pretty high. Always seems like in West Virginia we're at the bottom of um, the best list and at the top of the worst list. And so to me, to be able to have something that was created by a West Virginian is being built by West Virginians and is not only saving lives in West Virginia, but throughout the United States and potentially the world, I think that that is phenomenal. Concert goers trained at Healing in the Hills got a one box for free, but boxes retail for $250 through the Institute and do not include naloxone. Purchasers would need to stock the box themselves, but naloxone can be found at many pharmacies across the country and is available free online to residents in most states. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Bill Lynch in Charleston. Barbara Kingsolver is one of Appalachia's most acclaimed authors. Her novel, The Poisonwood Bible, held down a spot on the New York Times bestseller list for more than a year. It's been in development at HBO since 2019. Kingsolver's fiction takes readers all over the world, but she says her Appalachian roots inspire key parts of her stories. Liz McCormick sat down with Kingsolver to learn more. What does it mean to be an Appalachian in your own experiences and your own words? To me, it means home. It means recognizing and celebrating my own people. I grew up in the eastern part of Kentucky. I left my little rural town, as young people do. I lived all over the place on several continents doing, you know, low-paying jobs. And as I traveled the world and this country especially, I encountered a lot of shocking stereotypes, a lot of condescension. That made me mad. It still makes me mad. After trying out a lot of different places, I came back home to Appalachia. I now live on the other side of the mountains in southwest Virginia, but it's the same culture. It's the same language. It's the same um, emphasis on community and resourcefulness and kindness that I grew up knowing and loving. So as a writer, I see it as sort of my mission to represent us in a way that is seldom seen and seldom understood outside of Appalachia. So, Barbara, you've written a lot of diverse stories, uh, ranging from novels, short stories, poetry. Some of these stories take us all over the world. What sort of impact do, do your roots, your Appalachian roots, play in your writing? You know, with the Poisonwood Bible, it took place in the Congo. How does your background and uh, roots here in Appalachia impact your writing? You know, they say that every writer is really writing the same story over and over again. And if that's true, my story is about community, if I really examine all my works, even though they do, I work hard to make each one entirely new, not just a new place and set of characters, but asking a whole new question. I've written about climate change and why that's so hard for us to talk about. I've written, as you said, a book set in the Congo, which is about cultural arrogance and how, you know, what one nation will do to another. So these are big, big questions, sort of urgent 
modern themes. But if you sort of dig down into the heart of every one of these stories, it's about community. What is our duty to our community? How do we belong to it? How does it belong to us? And how does that play against the really powerful American iconography of the individual, the solo flyer, you know, the lone hero? That's supposed to be the American story. But as a woman and as an Appalachian woman, I... I always see, like, all the other people behind the solo flyer, you know, the people who gassed up his airplane, the women who packed his lunch. You know, I mean, there is there is no such thing as a lone hero. I'm interested in the heroism of people who think they're ordinary and people who are helping each other, creating families for each other or, or safe safety networks for each other, who are aware of their indebtedness to their neighbors and their people. Barbara, I understand that you've had a book hit bookshelves, a brand new book, and that is Demon Copperhead. I want to ask you to talk with us about this book and what can readers expect when they read this? Readers can expect a page turner. I live in deep, deep Southwest Virginia, which is the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. So We are living with this, and I wanted for several years to write about it, and I couldn't think of a good way in that would make this story interesting and, and, you know, appealing to to people, to readers, because it's, it's a hard subject. It's dark. It's difficult. Kids, you know, kids coming up in this, this environment. And then I I sort of had a had a conversation with Charles Dickens and I realized the way to tell the story is the way he told David Copperfield let the child tell the story. That's what I realized I needed to do. So this kid who's called Copperhead because he has red hair. He has Melungeon heritage, if people know what that is. And he's the child of a teenage drug-using mother. He's born actually on the floor of her single-wide trailer home. And he comes into the world with this fierce, if a newborn can have an attitude, demon has it. He tells you his story from his point of view, mostly taking place in his teens and early 20s as OxyContin is is released into Lee County, where he lives. But he tells this story in a way that, uh, in his own voice, in a way that will just give the reader a reason to turn every page because you need to know how he's going to come through this how he's going to survive because he is a survivor. He's funny, he's fierce, and he's passionate. That was award-winning author Barbara Kingsolver. She's the 2022 Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence at Shepherd University in West Virginia. Her new novel is Demon Copperhead. To hear an extended version of this conversation, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, The Company Stores, Tyler Childers, and The Appalachian Roadshow. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. This week, we say farewell to associate producer Alex Runyon. Alex was part of the behind-the-scenes crew and helped a lot with the online portion of the show. Thanks for everything, Alex, and good luck. We already miss you. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.